Welcome to the Grow Wealth Experience, where top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and influencers from around the world help empower you to build your best financial life. Now, here's your host, Aisha Turgut. Welcome back to the Grow Wealth Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to explore a commercial real estate investment type, and that is storage units. Now, on my last show, you heard me talk about inflation and how we should all be taking our money and looking for ways to allocate it into asset classes that is going to protect and hedge you and while remaining diversified. And I cannot emphasize how important real estate investing is to meet this objective, not only now, but for your long-term investment strategy. And we've been exploring different strategies on the show. And our guest today is going to introduce you once again to storage units. He's going to give you an overview on everything you need to know on storage unit investing. His name is Paul Moore. Here He is a serial entrepreneur and a real estate authority. And after a stint at Ford Motor Company, Paul co-founded a staffing firm where he was a two-time finalist for Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year. And after selling his publicly traded firm, Paul began investing in real estate. He has launched multiple investment and development companies. He's appeared on HDTV and has completed over 100 commercial and residential investments and exits. He's contributed to Fox Business and the Real Estate Guys Radio, and is a regular contributor to Bigger Pockets, producing live shows, recorded video, and blog content. Paul has also co-hosted a wealth-building podcast called How to Lose Money, and is the author of Storing Up Profits, Capitalizing on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Storage Units. He's also written The Perfect Investment, Creating Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. Paul is the founder and managing partner at Wells Capital, a real estate private equity firm. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, Aisha. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Wonderful. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. So let's talk a little bit about your background. You started your career off in residential real estate. Can you talk about your early part of your career and some of your accomplishments in that space and then follow that with why you switched to commercial? Yeah. So when I sold my company to a publicly traded firm in 97, uh, it was I was kind of lost. I thought about like semi-retirement at 34. I'm a high energy entrepreneur and wasn't sure what to do. And I thought, well, I'll just be a full-time investor now. And then I realized after several years of this that I wasn't really investing. I was speculating. You know, investing is when your principal's generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal's not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And so uh, I did a number of things like, uh, you know, a bunch of friends and I dropped a million dollars to the bottom of a hole in the ground, expecting many, many times, maybe a hundred times as much oil to come out. 
and it didn't come out. And so that was speculating. Uh, other things we did uh, in a similar vein. But at any rate, I was trying to uh, invest. I was investing in residential real estate. I flipped a bunch of houses, did some rental homes, built some ground up homes, did a small subdivision. And I was always wondering how to get into commercial and why the wealthiest people in the world seem to be in commercial real estate. But I didn't know where the on-ramp was. I didn't know how to get started, who to trust, how much money I would need. How would I you know, even get a loan? And so that seemed really mysterious to me. And in, after, as a result of that oil debacle I mentioned, we uh, noticed there was a huge housing shortage in North Dakota during the oil boom in about a decade ago. So we built a multifamily asset that we later, you know, that we ran for years as uh, an extended stay hotel for oil workers. We did it again. We did another project like that, then did a Hyatt hotel. And I learned about commercial real estate that way. Um, I eventually decided to stay in multifamily, ended up writing that first book called The Perfect Investment. But I found out multifamily wasn't the perfect investment if you have to overpay to get it. And that's where I felt we were going. It felt like speculating again to me. And so that's why I made the uh, diversion. That's why I made the uh, turn into self-storage and mobile home parks. And that's when we started Wellings Capital. Wonderful. Now, in your book, Storing Up Profits, you outline why you find storage units so attractive. Can you uh, talk about some of those specifics? Yeah. There's um, When I first heard about value-add self-storage, I think I laughed out loud because I was used to apartments, you know, with, uh, you know, beautiful floors and, um, you know, lighting and countertops and cabinets and appliances and BART parks. And I couldn't see any value adds in self-storage. It looked to me like four pieces of tin, some rivets, a floor and a door. Where was the value adds? Well, wow, was I mistaken. There are so many value adds in self-storage. In fact, just the whole premise of self-storage investing to me speaks of value add. Here's, here's what I think the crux of it is. There are 53,000 self-storage assets in the US. That's about the same as McDonald's, Subway, and Starbucks combined. But about 75%, three quarters, are owned by independent operators. And of that group, two out of three are solo asset operators, which puts them, you know, squarely in the mom and pop category. Now, mom and pops can be run really, really profitably, but often these folks don't have the desire or the knowledge or the resources to make upgrades, to increase income and to maximize value for their investors. Well, actually they don't have to because the value of self-storage has gone up about 2x in the last seven or so years because the market really loves this asset class. So while self-storage has gone up, a lot of these assets are still quite mediocre. And so to acquire one of these mediocre assets from a mom and pop operator, upgrade it, put a portfolio of these together and sell them to an institutional player like you know a REIT, Blackstone, insurance company, et cetera, it can be an extremely profitable enterprise. So we love the fragmented nature of the business, the ownership side of the business, I should say. Another thing we love is they're recession resistant. 
I mean, in booms, people are filling up their Walmart and Amazon carts and they need a place to store their stuff. In bad times, people are downsizing. And in COVID, they really, you know, they downsize, they move, they shut down office spaces, they shut down bars and restaurants, and they often needed a place to store their stuff. And so um, it's, it is quite recession resistant. Another thing I like is the prices the rents are quite inelastic. And what I mean by that is, let's put it this way. If I had an apartment I was renting from you for $2,000 a month, and you came and said, you're raising the rent by, you're raising the rent by 10%. Before I sign that piece of paper obligating me to $200 a month or $2,400 more next year, I might think twice, I might move. But in self-storage, if I'm renting a $100 storage unit from you, and you raise it by 10% again, uh, I might say, well, you know, I'm not going to spend a weekend, get a U-Haul, get all my friends together just to transport my junk, excuse me, my treasures down the street just to save 10 bucks a month. And so this, uh, you know, this opportunity to continue uh, raising rents is also a way of capturing inflation because you know, if I have a 20-year lease on an industrial building, I can't raise the rents if they're already set for the next 19 years. Self-storage, you can raise it every month. And so, and a lot of operators, you know, really good operators use dynamic pricing and they might change the prices every day. Um, I mentioned value adds and self-storage. There's a lot of them. Some of them are free, like adding U-Haul. You can add U-Haul uh, let let uh, U-Haul you know rent 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 their trucks out from the front of your building, and all you have to do is have your employee you know clean them out and sign the paperwork and move them out. This can create a, a value add that would be worth say five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars to the value of your facility. I'll take a breath if you want to go over that math. We can, but uh, again, these are some of the reasons we love self storage. Fantastic. Now, I, a lot of my listeners are more familiar with residential real estate. And to yeah. analyze that, you have to do your comps and establish the market value. How do you establish value in self-storage for someone who is looking to start? How does one, one go the, about doing that? Yeah. One of the reasons we love commercial real estate is you know, in residential, the last three flips I did, we overspent on the improvements. And it was hard to justify the price based on the neighborhood because they're based on comps. And most everybody understands that. Commercial real estate's entirely different. The value is based on math. Now, your mom and dad always told you to be good in math. And I think this was the reason, whether they knew it or not. The value formula for commercial real estate is the value equals the net operating income divided by the cap rate. And the cap rate is the market's evaluation of the rate of return for that asset in that condition, in that location at this time. And so the cap rates used to run around 10%, meaning if you bought a million dollar facility for cash, you could expect to cash flow about 100,000, 10%. Now the cap rates are running around 5% which means you have to pay $2 million to get that same $100,000 cash flow now. That's 5%, in other words, it's the cap rate. Anyway, 
in commercial real estate, you use this value formula and you can force appreciation. What I mean by that is if you can increase the net operating income, the numerator of our equation, you can therefore increase the value by the exact same percentage. However, if you're using debt, you can even you know leverage that equity to go even, for example, 50% debt means your equity improvements will be double what they would be with no debt. And so it's quite a sweet deal. It's the reason that uh, I think a lot of people love commercial real estate because you can somewhat, not completely, but somewhat control the value by how much you can make that math work for you. Right. So if you increase the income, it's through value add, you have more of a value of the entire unit. Right. That's right. Okay. All right. So how do we know that a storage unit, when you're looking for them, how do you know a deal is a good deal? What do we, what criteria do we analyze a storage unit with? Yeah. Great question. So if you're looking to buy a self-storage facility, um, you're going to want to look at four things right away. The first thing you're going to want to look at is the radius. And that will be the radius plus analysis specifically. That's um, a software you can go online to radius plus. And what you're going to want to do is check out the demographics, but more specifically, the square foot square footage of storage in, let's say, a three-mile radius. I mean, if you're in downtown uh, a big city, it might be a one-mile radius. If you're in a rural location, it could be a 10-mile radius. <clears throat> but let's say three-mile radius for a typical suburban location. You'll draw that ring. And you'll see how many square feet of self storage is in that ring. And then also how many people are in that ring, men, women, and children. And then you divide that out and you look for a square footage per person. And seven or eight square feet per person is the national average. And so if you come out with like 25 square feet of storage per person, like Boise, Idaho, you're probably not going to want to buy there. The competition's way too high. If you come out with a number like four square feet per person, like in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, you might say, hey, that might be a good place to locate or buy a self-storage facility. So that's the first criteria. The second one is pretty simple. It's just income. You want to be in the median to high income bracket compared to that area. You definitely don't want to be in a bad neighborhood because the people who store stuff often wouldn't want to go into a bad neighborhood, even if your facility was secure. Third, you're going to want to be on a well-traveled road. You're going to want to catch, check the VPD, the vehicles per day count in front of that facility. Fourth, you're going to want to know, be sure that you're really uh, visible on that road. You can be on a highly traveled road, but be down you know, behind a Walmart where you can't see it over a hill. That wouldn't be helpful. But those are the four first criteria I'd look at before uh, looking at a storage facility. Fantastic. Now, in your book, you also you outline some of the tax benefits of owning storage units. What are some of those? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So tax benefits are amazing in real estate. You know, the government, these aren't loopholes. The government has specifically designed the tax code to motivate people to do what they want. So if people are, you know, if they're building uh, commercial real estate, they're building self-storage, they're creating jobs, 
and they're creating more opportunities for other people to earn income. So uh, the some of the uh, tax benefits would include um, if you're investing in a syndication, like you know, a professionally managed uh, deal, right. you can get a, a K one, and that means that the depreciation, the loss, the paper losses will flow through you to through to you directly. You can also accelerate the depreciation by doing a cost segregation study. Now you can always do that. This breaks down some of the <clears throat> some of the depreciable items from the less depreciable. So, in other words, the walls of the building uh, those might be uh, depreciated straight line over thirty nine years. So, uh, but there might be uh, other components like carpet, flooring, lighting, electrical fixtures windows, doors, roof, all kinds of things that can be depreciated over five, seven, or 15 years. So if you do that, you're compressing the paper losses into earlier years, which means you're not going to be paying often. You're not going to often be paying taxes, federal income taxes or state on that cash flow for years to come. There's going to come a day when you have to pay that back, but it's typically at a lower rate because it's considered a um, uh, capital gain at the end of the line. It's thrown in with the capital gains. Um, another benefit is collect correctly classifying deductible repairs. Now, this is true in all real estate, but as you get into these larger uh, facilities like self-storage versus some small residential, you can uh, you'll you'll hopefully have a tax professional that will classify a whole lot of the repairs in what's called Section One Seventy Nine. Or into arenas where they, you know, they can be fully written off that year. Another benefit with these types of assets is the 1031 exchange. I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, the 1031 exchange was taken away through the 2017 tax law for everything but real estate. But with real estate, you can continually swap and avoid those uh, depreciation catch-ups and the capital gains. And if you swap and then swap again and swap again, and you do that till you die, well, your kids in most cases will not have to pay any of that gain back. All those gains will be uh, basically wiped out at the passing of, you know, the, um, the uh, second parent, you know, the spouse typically. So um, the kids usually won't have to pay taxes or the heirs, I should say, won't have to pay taxes. Another thing we really like is, you know, there's like trillions of dollars in uh, retirement plans like 401ks and IRAs. What a lot of people don't know is that uh, it's possible to actually um, invest in real estate through your IRA. You have we to have, have a self-directed IRA. Do you? Okay, great. I had an entire show on that. Yes. But please, you can go on as a reminder, just in case people did miss that show. Yeah. So there's self-directed 401ks, there's self-directed IRAs, there's Roth self-directed IRAs. You can invest uh, in real estate through these and there are tremendous tax benefits to doing that. So those are some of the benefits of investing in real estate, some of the tax benefits. The last thing I'll throw in is if you're a full-time real estate professional, you can avoid passive loss limitations and you can actually apply a lot of those paper losses to, let's say you or a spouse's W-2 
or 1099 income and significantly slash your tax bill. Fantastic. Now, this is our last question. In your book, you outline different strategies for storage units. What is your favorite? And can you talk about that one? Yeah, the four different strategies. One is just to buy a cash flowing self-storage asset. Not many of us would want to do that. A second one is value add, where you buy a f- underperforming facility and you extract the intrinsic value out by adding all these value adds. A third one is ground up construction, which is the highest risk, but highest potential return or potential loss. And then the fourth strategy is um, renovating an old building like a Sears, a Kmart, Toys R Us, uh, renovating a building like that and turning it into self-storage. The, um, I think that one of the most exciting ones is that last one, the renovation, but the one I'll camp on is value add self-storage because, you know, Aisha, I, I don't believe you can know who the best investors are until there's a downturn. You know, the rising, buy, the rising tide has lifted all boats in the real estate arena for about 14 years. But Warren Buffett said someday that tide's going to go out and then we'll see who's skinny dipping. Well, we really won't know who the good and bad operators are until that tide goes out. And so value add investing, meaning you're acquiring a facility that's already run, you know, whether it's run well or poorly, you're, you're acquiring a facility that's already got tenants, it's already got cash flow, it's already got something going on. You don't have to lease it up from scratch. And then if a downturn hits, and you're extracting those value add opportunities during the downturn, in theory, you'll still have a margin of safety between your cash flow uh, and your um, uh, debt service. And that widening cash flow, known as the debt service coverage ratio, is your widening margin of safety. Warren Buffett says the cornerstone to all investing success is having a wide margin of safety. And uh, that's what I like. And so I'll choose the value add all day long. And for the uh, assets that our company, Wellings Capital, has invested in, we've done best in the value add arena, even with the ground up developments that were supposed to be swinging for the fence. um, We've actually done better with the value add deals, at least in our case. Fantastic. Now, is there anything you want to that I haven't asked you'd like to tell our listeners before we say goodbye? Yeah, I would. Uh, Thanks for asking. It's really important that you have a big why. When I sold my company in 1997, I woke up the next day and I didn't feel that much better than I did the day before, even though I had a couple million dollars in the bank. And I realized, you know, we're created for a, an eternal purpose. We're, you know, we're created to, for relationship for other people, and to, you know, to, to rescue people who are less fortunate than us. And years later, I found out that if you took the record profits, Aisha, not the not the average profits, but the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, mm-hmm. added those together and doubled that number, you would have the um, annual estimated profits from human trafficking every year, according to the U.S. State Department. This is a serious situation, and it's the biggest. Uh, it's the lar- There's the largest number of slaves anytime in human history right now. Even since we started, it. yeah, I know. So even since we started this podcast, about 300 people 
typically young girls, have been captured or sold into slavery. And so it's a massive problem. And my company, Wellings Capital, is committing ourselves to getting involved, to doing something about it. And I recommend everybody else do as well. I love that you have a, a ESG component to your company. I love hearing that. Yeah, Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul, for your time. You shared a lot of valuable information with our listeners today, and I hope to have you back. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's such an honor to be here. Thanks, Aisha. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. See you next time. And don't forget, like and subscribe to the channel.